Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk podcast. We're going to continue the conversation today with Dr. Mike Allen and Dr. Tina Koronik. So, Mike, you make a, a number of recommendations in the manuscript regarding uh, cannabis uh, use for primary care physicians. And what we see over and over again is a strongly recommended use against, which often appears with almost always a weak recommendation for use, but only after an adequate trial of one to two uh, other types of therapies. Is this an accurate observation? So the way we approach these kind of things is we, we think what would what would be required by Health Canada for a normal pharmaceutical product to come to market? What would the therapeutic product directorate, or if you're in the States, the FDA, require? Uh, what kind of standards would they ask for? And they would ask for robust randomized control trials with consistent results, all of those kind of things. And when we're not seeing that, then we have to be cautious. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly the problem. Now, some will say, will point to incredible research about cannabis, and there is lots of that out there. Um, so an example of that is you'll see quoted in newspapers and such that 75, 85, 90% of people who use cannabis feel it works for them. But those are patients who have been surveyed because they've been on cannabis for a while now. Yeah. And so they'll, it would be like, and I use this analogy regularly, <laughs> Tina's heard it lots, it would be like going to Starbucks and waiting outside of Starbucks and watching for a person who comes in and buys a, a mocha every day with two pumps of vanilla, and they do that for three months, and then you go up and ask them, do they like mocha with three pumps or two oh, pumps yeah. of vanilla? Right. They're probably going to say yes. Yes. And so if you get someone who's using cannabis regularly, if it wasn't working for them, they would have quit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the, the, these kind of uh, cross-sectional observational studies are virtually useless because mm-hmm. they're just telling you that people who are using it. So if you like if you it. ask someone who is regularly yeah. using Tylenol or acetaminophen um, for for headaches, um, and they found and they were using it all the time whenever they had a headache, and you ask them, do you think it works? Of course they think it works because that's why they're using it. Yeah. So you can't. Yeah, you need randomized control trials, and unfortunately those are um, inherently have yeah. significant flaws uh, related to. To cannabinoids, and again, it's not like the research can't be done well. It's just well, especially with legalization now, eh? So it's uh, hopefully we'll see some some science mm-hmm. that helps to kind of navigate this really complex area. It, it the other yeah. thing that was quite surprising to me in terms of seeing it as a pharmaceutical in terms of the patients that will come to us is that, because uh, I, I would go to some of these compassion clubs early on before it was legal, just to kind of have a sense of what was happening. They had very little uh, interest in what the patient was already taking. Uh, they only cared about you know, what what we were, what condition we were treating. It didn't matter what pharmacology the patient was on. So I, I, I found that a little bit unnerving, especially in some of our palliative care populations who are on very, you know, methadone, you know, very strong pharmacology. So I wasn't sure how that combination was going to impact. And obviously, it sort of talk the patient through that. But there is very little interest in what else the patient's on, which you don't see in other types of medications. Obviously, the pharmacist is very concerned about what they're on and how the combinations work. <laughs> yeah. So do you guys yeah, find that too? It so. is interesting. Yeah. It is interesting. And yeah. in how this is, it's almost like there's a belief that because this is a naturally derived product that it's safe. But as you know, we 
we use in medicine all sorts of naturally derived products. Exactly. Um, aspirin and um, opioids. And I, I'm not, yeah, op- <laughs> yeah, opioids are an absolute great example. Digoxin, yeah. like the, we could go on and on, but yeah. the point is, is that just being natural, if it's got an effect, it also has adverse effects. That's just the nature of, yeah. of these agents or any agents. And so I think we have to be, we, we have to be honest about that and recognize they're going to have interactions. And certainly just like a drug that, if you if you take one drug that reduces blood sugar and you take a second one that reduces blood sugar, you're just compounding risk for hypoglycemia. If you take a if you have a drug that you know impairs cognitive function a little bit or is at risk for that or causes sedation, and you add another product like a cannabinoid that can do the same thing, you're just compounding those risks. Yeah. And and it's a it's a bit disingenuous of us to not think that those interactions do occur. Oh, yeah. And, you know, where the area that we're really seeing this impact is in around oncology and palliative care. And I'm sure you, you guys are seeing this as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, in particular around, um, are you familiar with Rick Simpson oil, the the oil that you hear out there, uh, there a lot of patients, and it's mostly coming. So, you know, you might have a, I'll give you an example that I had recently, a 72-year-old female that was diagnosed with metastatic lung CA and a son coming from out west who uh, came home with a cure, which was Rick Simpson oil. And uh, this, this is, and I started to investigate it, but very high concentration of THCs, not shatter-like, but very high concentration of mm-hmm. THC. And these would be completely uh, cannabis-naive patients, you know, elderly patients. But there's this this piece where you're trying to navigate hope with these families around uh, a cure for the cancer, but you're trying to bring in other therapies that have been tested to, you know, around the chemotherapies and the immunotherapies. And it sometimes is a really scary place to kind of go. But, you know, we're always constantly navigating this hope around this this plant and uh, how it's supposed to fix everything. But uh, I think family docs need to be aware of, of what's out there as well in terms of uh, some of these patients we didn't even realize they were using this, but it's quite, it's very common now to see this in our oncology mm-hmm. patients. I'm not sure if you're seeing it out west or... I haven't seen this particular product, but the use of cannabis or cannabis derivatives for cancer or prevention of cancer and or treatment of cancer has been growing in popularity. It's again, not founded in any evidence that I'm aware of. And it, it's utility in palliative care. I certainly know a number of colleagues who've who've talked about the utility of it, the opioid sparing effects and all of that. That The research isn't great in demonstrating mm-hmm. that, to be honest, but yeah. it is. there's a lot of um, talk in the therapeutic community. And I think, honestly, for the very reasons we've talked about, that we have so many limitations in, in what we can do for people in pain. And there's... Um, yeah not a lot of wonderful choices, that having an extra choice is reasonable, just not thinking that it's, it too is a panacea. If you, if you look at the medical literature, you can see even in our guideline and systematic review that, that a number of patients, more patients will quit taking yes, um, yes, THC yeah. due to adverse events, or t- not THC, but cannabis um, yeah. and cannabinoids due to adverse events, particularly when researched in the right populations, like people who are naive to product. Yeah. Yeah. When you look at your, uh, the, the neuropathic pain, the pharmacotherapy treatment, sort of the happy face, uh, I don't know how you, what you, how you describe that, but that is so, it is so helpful for patients to see that and to, to help them understand, you know, especially around cannabinoids, you know, who benefits, you know, who may not benefit, but you know, if they want to give, I always talk about giving a trial and here's what we're going to mm-hmm. look for kind of thing. But I find that, uh, yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit about some 
some of the tools that you have on that webpage. I mean, it's a fantastic webpage. So I think the webpage you're talking about, Maureen, is that uh, the pain calculator. Is the, that, that right? That pain, so, yeah, all of that stuff is is, is was yeah, very helpful when yeah, I was so navigating. We, yeah. So we have uh, one of the big things in, in what we do is trying to uh, look at the evidence and then finding a way that we can uh, share that evidence with clinicians who are super busy and don't have time to read a 200-page guideline. Uh, and then to share with our patients as well to sort of promote that shared informed decision-making. And so trying to do what we uh, what we do, base it on evidence as well. So uh, there is a nice review that looked at different ways to sort of present information. And it looks like the use of things like icon arrays, which are those little happy faces yes. that show how many people get better and how many people don't, um, was one of the better ways to share information with patients and trying to, again, allow them to be involved in the decision making. And so that's where some of this idea came from. And then um, the pain calculator uh, is probably the second calculator because the first one the team did with in conjunction with James McCormack was the the cardiovascular risk calculator. And then um, the pain calculator when uh, we started looking at cannabis and management of pain, um, thought that this was a great way to put that information up for clinicians and patients. And uh, we're working on it even as we speak because we're currently working on our systematic review around osteoarthritis management and looking at different interventions and low back pain and those sorts of things. Yeah, I found that really so cool. (laughs) When I got on there, I went, oh, this is really neat. One of the the challenges that we have in Nova Scotia, we have some of the highest rates of cannabis use in Canada, (laughs) especially Mm. in our youth. Uh, So uh, I think we're up to about 32.8% versus 17 for the Canadian data. So, oh my goodness, we're seeing, (laughs) in in our chronic pain, um, I do a lot of uh, pain self-management work as well. And I bring cannabis into the discussion because, you know, just to have it out there, but it's incredible when you start digging into some of the, 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 the what people are actually using and shatter is fairly common which is this really high concentration yep. and uh, mm-hmm. so and that, that to me I just see that as totally as tolerance uh, and disconnection but also concerns around obviously especially the teenagers in that family having access to those things so but anyway yeah. but mm. yeah so no that's good is there anything because we can move on to opiates because I'm sort of weary of the time I know both of you are pretty busy the only thing I'll add is so when you looked at the um, icon arrays, and, and Tina described that right, that was from a review of how you present information to patients and um, also giving them the actual percent chances of getting better rather than number needed to treats or anything. So that's what we strive to do. But when you look at that, you, you note that cannabis is probably the least effective therapy, yes. yeah. if you had to guess, out of all of the yeah. therapies that yeah. we have. And and so when you were saying, you know, why is it that you're weakly recommending cannabis, it's it's just because that it had higher adverse events than virtually every other product, except maybe opioids. It had the least effectiveness and some of the worst research. When your guideline committee just looks at that in the basic facts of that, they can't really push any of the therapies up to first line because we know that other products are are probably safer and more effective for the average patient at least based on clinical trials. Yeah. So that's why it's not that we didn't, you know, we feel that you that they should never be used. It's just that the other um, agents have more robust evidence. And the and the other thing too, in terms of an adequate trial of, of medication, is a, you know a mean or a meaningful reduction is about a thirty percent reduction if we're looking at chronic pain in particular, with an improvement in function, um, but a reduction yeah. of about thirty percent. And that that 
that is, you know, I often will say to patients that I can get that same reduction if I can get you moving without big pain flare-ups, you know, that kind of mm. thing. So it's yeah. seeing that it's, so there's a lot, there's a lot of, uh, we, we sometimes can set unrealistic expectations around the pharmacology. And when we tell patients that, look, we're just looking at a 30%, that can be huge though for some people in the chronic pain population. I'm obviously not talking about other populations, but uh Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. that's are, actually are, one of oh, I, that's one of my ahead, favorite yeah. things of this calculator is that that uh, the comment on thirty percent reduction in pain scores to just set the uh, the bar for where patients are you know the understanding of what we can actually achieve here because yeah. often the expectation is this will cure it and that's not the case um, and it, even when we looked at the evidence around that some some of the evidence that we looked at uh, had had less than a thirty percent reduction so we yeah. thought you know it's almost like is this number too high? But um, it's really great for just a discussion with patients around yes. here's what you can expect, you know, sort of at best, exactly. <laughs> which is unfortunate, but it, uh, it, good to set those early. And the other piece too, I think, so that, that improvement in function, but I, I'm curious to see what you guys think about this. But the other thing that I add into that is that we want to also avoid sedation because mm-hmm. oftentimes, even before they even get to that 30%, the impact in terms of that sedation is sort of limited, limited their movement. They're just sort of in these mental fogs with these centrally acting drugs. And mm-hmm. uh, so that avoiding sedation piece, I'm curious about what you think about that. Yeah, I think it's the whole collection of things. So um, all of it goes into it. Certainly the avoidance of sedation, but other you know significant adverse events that would be um, potentially impacting people. So you can you know have a slowing of your cognition with some of these products, or you know we certainly hear with the um, TCAs and and that kind of thing that they'll get a dry mouth or they'll they'll just feel um, like a, you've you've probably heard this term before, but like a zombie. All of those yeah. things. So we want to. We want to use the pharmacokinetics as best we can to give lower doses that are going to maximize the potential effect while minimizing the adverse events, and that's true of of any product. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so we, and and that's always the trick here. So you're adding in, and and as you know, in chronic pain, for uh, over half of the patients or so, they will need two agents to yeah. get to a place where they're satisfied with the intervention. So we have to remember, just as Tina was indicating, that setting the goals, that it's it's not uncommon to need two interventions to, to get to a place where you're yeah. content with your pain control and therefore your hopefully your improved function. Why why aren't we talking about more about function in these? Well there's two main reasons. One is that patients actually complain mostly about pain and it was these things are being designed as a discussion tool for that. And we do care about mm-hmm. uh, function to a great deal. But surprisingly, only until recent years was function a regular part of randomized control yes. trials. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if we're looking, if we want to use the, the volume of the evidence, we could choose to look at function and maybe get one trial that addressed mm-hmm. that in, for a certain intervention for a certain condition. Or we could look at pain and get four or five trials mm-hmm. yeah. that addressed it. Yeah. So that was our, our choice early on to focus on, on pain. And we know that as pain goes down or as these kind of improvements in quality of life happen, we, people will change their activity level and that kind of thing. Not maybe in the way we're hoping where they're going to go out and do regular exercise more, but they might go from you know, not feeling able to do anything much more than walk around their house to being able to do yard work and yeah. uh, go for a walk to get groceries or those those kind of things. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to end it there and pick it up next week with Dr. Koronik regarding opiate use disorder in primary care. 
Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.